My name is Wilton. This is the Black Oralities Podcast. This is episode six, I believe. Um, this might be a two-parter, but for now, I want to just focus in on setting some context around what this episode is going to be about. So this episode in its entirety is going to be about um, nationalist myth-making in South Africa, and specifically Afrikaner nationalist myth-making in South Africa, and how that emerges in the post-apartheid. So how that continues to play out and how it continues to produce and reproduce itself. And I'm focusing specifically on the case of an artist named Bok van Blerk and his song celebrating an old Afrikaner general, uh, De La Rey. Uh, I think his name was Quis, Quis De La Rey. Um, a famed uh, Af- white Afrikaner nationalist uh, leader who fought this uh, supposedly incredible battle. and But yeah, so the focus will be on uh, Bok van Blerk and his song De La Rey. This is a, a topic that gets me hot, you know, in the chest and riles me up. So forgive me if there are moments where I give in to the anger, to the rage, um, to the hot-headedness. But I'll try and just give you the broad scopes of my argument and uh, keep developing some kind of cohesive, coherent discussion around this. Like I said, my name is Wilton. I am a scholar of history uh, and specifically of black histories around the world. I have two master's degrees, one in history from the University of the Western Cape, where I wrote a dissertation on, uh, well, we call it a thesis. I wrote a thesis on uh, black science fiction and black electronic music uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, with a focus on techno musicians and out of Detroit and one brilliant master musician, William Onyabo. I did an episode on each of those topics already. So just go go back to the Black Oralities uh, catalog of episodes and go check those out. Um, and then I also did a master's degree in Africana Studies from Brown University and that was a kind of broad interdisciplinary education around the theories of uh, the black diasporic world, the history and theory of the black diasporic world. So I'm going to start off hot because this is, uh, yeah, this is something that's close to my, close to my heart. So this this first part of this entire episode, again, this might be cut into two depending how long the context setting is that I'm going to be doing. But um, I kind of want to start with an anecdote and then perhaps launch into a rant, but we'll see. But uh, I want to tell a story about when I was uh, 17, I went to a school that was a formerly whites-only school in South Africa, the uh, Kalen. Um, we call those Model C schools under apartheid and and after apartheid they were called former Model C schools because now they were incorporated uh, black so-called colored people Indian people everybody was allowed to att- technically was allowed to attend these schools 
and so, yeah, I attended one of these schools that was a formerly white school. Still, the the faculty, the teaching faculty were almost all white. And um, if you know anything about the South African school system, you know that in public schools you wear uh, uniforms. But this was one one of those special days and we were doing some kind of fundraising and all the students were allowed to bring in um, a little bit of money, I think maybe five rand or ten rand, um, and you were then allowed to wear casual clothes that day. On that specific day, so I also played rugby. Um, and if you know, again, if you know anything about South Africa, you know South Africa is a rugby mad country. Um, and one of my teammates, Andre, a uh, young white guy, also about 17, 18, um, he came to school wearing a T-shirt that had, in big print, the old South African flag um, and the phrase, uh, Prat Afrikaans of Hoyobek, uh, which is translates for those who speak English, to speak Afrikaans or shut up, basically. So the old South African flag accompanied by that phrase, um, again, this is something that I can, I, I'm going to go into, the, the kind of history of Afrikaans and the history of the, the term Afrikaner as well. But for the sake of the story, before I launch into all the context setting, all the history and all of that, and then the music part, he's wearing this T-shirt. Uh, first, I go up and speak to him and I say this is deeply offensive. My father, my parents were anti-apartheid activists. Uh, this flag stands for the oppression and the, the attempted eradication of most of the black population of South Africa um, and the deep, uh, almost 50 years of uh, Afrikaner nationalist apartheid in South Africa, white nationalist apartheid in South Africa. This thing is a symbol of that. For you to wear this to, the, to a school where, where black and brown people are now allowed to go is not only deeply offensive, but it's extremely violent. It's a gesture of real um, intent, not only to rile people up, but to uh, sow seeds of discrimination and to purposefully set out to offend people. And uh, he, of course, he defended himself and he said I was overreacting and that I don't know anything about history and I don't know what this flag means and he's not a racist, he's just wearing a t-shirt, all of these things. Um, it proceeded to the point where I had to speak to some of our head teachers and I, I chose to speak to the rugby coach because that was the person who I trusted to, who knew both of us and who would have the most... Uh, capable way of reaching uh, Andre in that in that moment but they all brushed it off and said it's just a t-shirt that I'm overreacting uh, and that I am taking too much offense to something that is not offensive it's a part of our history it's a part of our culture etc uh, at the end of the school day we were getting ready for rugby practice and he still had the t-shirt on he had gone some way off campus on his motorbike and he had come back and he had his motorbike helmet on. 
And I, at that point, I was just angry. And I confronted him and I said, this is, this is really messed up. Um, I threw some choice swear words at him and I explained to him why this is so messed up, why this is so offensive, and why this shouldn't uh, continue. And uh, he really, he decided that that was enough for him. And he started berating me and telling me that I am the racist, that it's my people that are trying to force white South Africans to leave, telling them to go to Europe, etc., etc. And uh, he came at me with his motorbike helmet still on and he pushed it up against my forehead and uh, tried to intimidate me in that way with his, school hel with his uh, motorcycle helmet on, wearing this old South African t-shirt. I've never been. I've never been one to. I'm. I. I don't step back from a fight, but I also don't. Uh, I generally don't enter into altercations unless I'm trying to stop something or protect a friend or, or something like that, or protect someone who needs it in that moment. But that day, I just could not. <laughs> I just could not uh, stand the rage and. Um, we got into a big fight and, and, and it ended up with me getting detention and Andre being not um, not having to, you know, face any consequences from the school. I tell the story because I want to show that this white Afrikaner mythology is something that has persisted uh, in the post-apartheid. And in many ways it's been reinvented and reinvigorated Every decade since the end of apartheid, it's been 30 years now, and every time you see a new version um, of this of this kind of myth-making emerge over and over. Um, the song that I'm going to speak about came out in the lead-up to this altercation. So the year before I got into this altercation with with this fellow student wearing the um, old South African flag, Andre, uh, the year before this song praising this Afrikaner Boer general was released. Uh, and so, you know, it's important to, it's important for me to hold that context in place as well. So for the sake of setting a broader historical context outside of my <laughs> anecdotal engagement, and I can tell a ton of stories of engaging with these young white, white men, especially by young white people who constantly reinvent the, the myth of the, the white Afrikaner in South Africa. I can tell a ton of those stories because that's, you know, I, I spent most of my teen years around um, these folks. Um, but for the sake of being a good teacher and a good interlocutor, I want to give you the, the broad, big historical uh, context so that we have something to constantly refer back to. Also, I want to say there's another bastion of, <laughs> of Afrikaner myth-making that absolutely sucks and that is the Afrikaans part of the South African national anthem um, and I'll talk about that again uh, some more. So first off I want to 
dispel a couple of myths. First, the first myth I want to dispel is that Afrikaans is a white language. It's the language of white people. It's the language of oppressors. It's a direct descendant of Dutch. Um, and that is slight. That part is slightly true, but only slightly. Uh, so, first of all, and then and then the other myth I want to dispel is that Afrikaners are white people. So, so let me start with the, that second part first. Um, the first people to call themselves Afrikaner are a group of indigenous people, people indigenous to South Africa who were who had um kind of developed cultural and ancestral communities that exist beyond just the indigenous indigenous uh, uh family lines so a lot of enslaved people were brought to the then cape colony uh what is now south africa um under under dutch rule uh, so we have people from South Asia coming. We have people from Madagascar being brought, forced uh, into slavery in South Africa. We have people from Mozambique, but then we also have the Dutch settlers. And so the first people to call themselves Afrikaner are these Urlam people, these people who uh, go on to establish communities in the Northern Cape, in Namibia, um, all across Southern Africa, uh, but they are descendants of the indigenous people of South Africa. They call themselves the Urlam. Um, the language is still contested. There are great books around what 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 do we refer? How do we refer to the indigenous people of South Southern Africa? Is it Khoi Khoi? Is it Khoi San? Is it San and Khoi? You know, uh, the the debates are still open and the conversation is still happening. But one thing that we can say for sure is that the Orlam were brown people. They were black people. They were not. They were not white descendants of the Dutch, uh, who desired a kind of Dutchness and and a self-indigenizing, as settler colonialists do across the world, across history, uh, yeah, they, they, they were black people. Um, and so I want to dispel that myth first. The original people who were Afrikaner were indigenous people to Southern Africa. They were black people, they were brown people, they were descendants of the Khoi and the San, and again, depending on the term and the way you are choosing to phrase it which school of thought you are in around that, but they are descendant of indigenous people. The second myth I want to dispel immediately before we carry on, and I can already see that this is definitely going to be a two-parter, but the second myth I want to dispel is that Afrikaans is a language of white people for the descendants of Dutch. Um, it does get hijacked and taken up as that later on, uh, and this is part of the Afrikaner, white Afrikaner nationalist myth-making, is the, the hijacking of this language um, for their purposes of subjugation. Uh, but we, we have a long history, a long understanding uh, 
that Afrikaans gets developed by the people who are under subjugation, not the Dutch settlers. In fact, there were rebellions uh, around the language. There's the Ya rebellion, where instead of saying Ya Bas or Ya Manier, like Yes Bas or Yes Master or Yes Sir, enslaved people would just say Ya. And that is a, a kind of dismissal in the inherent in the language of the white master, the white slave master, the Dutch slave master in that context, and then later the British uh, slave master. Uh, and I want us to hold very, very tight to our minds as I continue this episode, but also as we continue in life as South Africans, but also as people um, interested in any sort of study of settler colonialism and history of, of subjugation and oppression and colo uh, colonialism, this language that develops, this Creole, this uh, sometimes in, in Afrikaans it will be called bastardal, kind of like, ba almost like bastard language or like mixed breed language. Um, uh, it, it belongs to and it comes from the black and brown people who were enslaved, who were under subjugation, who had to develop means of communication that transcended the language barriers um, that were local to the region, but also had to transcend the oppressive Dutch language that was uh, brought in and forced as a means of communication. So it's an adaptation, it's a way of molding of of shaping language and linguistic turns um, for the needs of the masses. And so it's, again, important to note that that language belongs to the black and brown people of South Africa. In fact, today, still today, the most of the Afrikaans uh, speakers in South Africa, home language Afrikaans speakers in South Africa, are not white people. So it's important, again, I can't emphasize this enough. Afrikaner, this is something that gets hijacked by white people later on to, and in an attempt to indigenize themselves. Afrikaans, the language, as well, same thing. It gets hijacked, it's get, it gets taken up in a white nationalist, white supremacist project in order to make this new kind of mythos of uh, the Afrikaner in uh, in the lead up to uh, um, in the lead up to uh, apartheid in South Africa. So again, let's let's keep all of these things in mind. South Africa looks back on her glorious past. Just about a hundred years ago, teams of grunting oxen heaved wagons over bare rocks and scrub as thousands of Boer farmers, descendants of the original Dutch settlers, left Cape Colony to open up the interior. They called themselves the Fortrekkers. They founded the Transvaal. And today, at a mighty hillside camp south of Pretoria, the modern union remembers the Fortrekkers. They wear the old costumes, and then, as an additional celebration, 37 couples join in a mass wedding. And by the way, none of the girls are allowed to use lipstick, rouge, or powder, just to show the world that beauty is more than skin deep in South Africa. Welcome back. So 
that was just a snippet um, of a recording from, let me see, a kind of British <laughs> historical piece from 1939 about uh, the Great Trek. And this is the section that I'll be speaking about now. Um, and the it's part of the national white nationalist Afrikaner myth-making project um, that continues today is uh, it's it's rooted very foundationally in this myth of the um, of the Great Trek, the so-called Great Trek. Um, trek loosely, tra I mean, it's used in English now all the time, but it loosely translates to uh, uh, a big movement, uh, you know, a kind of uh, across-the-land movement. Um, so the Great Trek is something that happens uh, in the early 1800s, 1830s. Um, it's not one singular event. It's, you know, it's a bunch of people moving over time from what is then called the British Cape Colony, uh, which nowadays includes places like Cape Town, uh, which for the international folks you, you've probably heard of. Um, and it's a movement of the descendants of uh, Dutch settler colonialists and full-on Dutch settler colonialists out of the, the British uh, colonial territories into the northern hinterlands of South Africa. Uh, I mean, this is before it was fully uh, a unified uh, South Africa. So you had the Cape Colony, you had the Free State, and uh, you had the Transvaal. Um, yeah, and so early in the 1800s, these Dutch settler colonialists were really uh, upset uh, about having to live under colonial rule. Again, this is hilarious. Um, in a way, and I say this, I say this as a person who, who does often bear a lot of um, difficult feelings about the this kind of colonial, post-colonial apartheid, post-apartheid uh, history of South Africa. Part of me does feel <laughs> kind of s not sorry, but like, uh, um, yeah. Anyway, whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't really care to elaborate on that feeling. Um, but the the there's a kind of irony in the the upset that these Dutch settler colonialists feel about having to live under British colonial rule, uh, and it's. It's an irony that gets produced and reproduced over time. And and really it's this kind of this attempt at constantly establishing that 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 uh, white African nationalists will historically and into the present, they'll constantly establish and reestablish this practice of making themselves the absolute victim in the South African context. So in this in the Great Trek moment it is in relation to 
British colonization. But then, for na- for instance, now in in the present moment, they will mark themselves out and say, "Well, we are the victims of reverse racism in this country. We make up such a small amount of the populace, and and we are the ones who are actually oppressed." And please, uh, USA, come save us. Please, Britain, come save us. Please, Germany, come save us. Uh, you often hear things about us. Uh, this. Uh, you'll hear about farm murders, you'll hear about a white genocide going on. These are all just made-up tropes um, by white Afrikaner nationalists to establish themselves as the real victims uh, in the post-apartheid context. Um, I'm particularly uh, interested in this move into the hinterland in during the Great Trek because oftentimes it's written about as if there was uh, a deep sense of collaboration between uh, the white Afrikaner nationalists and uh, the black people they encountered along the way. But of course, we also know that they had um, established uh, slave populations living with them, uh, black enslaved people, working for them, living with them. And part part of the, their upset with the British colonialists is that at a certain point in the 1800s, the Brits decided that um, the slave trade, the trade of slaves uh, was no longer a good look and a good economic practice. And so they decided to outlaw it. And the white nationalists, Afrikaners, the Dutch, the settler colonialists, the descendants of the settler colonialists, they were upset about that. Um, They still wanted to continue their their slave, their practices of enslavement. Um, So that's another reason why they were upset and why they decided to flee to the hinterlands. Um, There's also the claim that they they were economically... They were suffering economically, so they were um, struggling um, to maintain the standard of living that they've established for themselves through colonialism and exploitation and slavery. Uh, And so that is given as another reason for why, another catalyst for why the the great trek, the groot trek, uh, happens. Interestingly, there's still a road that runs all the way from the southernmost part of Cape Town, Salt River, Woodstock area, um, all the way through to like uh, Strand on the other side of Cape Town. So if you look on a map and you look for uh, Fort Trekker Road, you'll see it's a conne- it's a, it's one road. The name kind of changes along the way, but it's one connected road. It starts off as Fort Trekker. It becomes... At some places in Kells River, it becomes Van Riebeek Drive, named after Jan Van Riebeek, another piece of trash, a colonialist uh, arriving at the South African shores in 1650s. Um, but yeah, so that's that's another um, kind of important moment in the myth-making of white Afrikaner nationalism in South Africa. Um, but I also want to tell a story. I also want to, 
I also want to talk about something, again, in the previous segment I spoke about, and I actually want to make a correction now as well, but in the previous section I spoke about uh, the Urlams and uh, who were the first people to call themselves Afrikaner, and this is another story related to that. I said the Ya Rebellion, Ya meaning yes uh, in Afrikaans, but actually it was the Yay Rebellion, Yay, then spelled J-I-J, now spelled J-Y in Afrikaans, uh, which means you. And to address someone with yay or J is uh, seen as an act of disrespect. So the formal, the formal way to address someone with authority, seniority is E, um, and yay or J would be considered uh, a slap in the face. How this how this rebellion comes to happen in the Cape Colony, the so-called Cape Colony, is that so the the story goes, the Haitian Revolution happens, right? It happens. It unfolds early, uh, you know, first decade of the eighteen hundreds, and then two Irish sailors come to Cape Town. Um, Louis van Mauritius, an enslaved man, happens to come across two Irish sailors who are talking about the fact that the Haitian Revolution happened two years ago. Um, and he hears the story. Remember now, this is the beginning of the 1800s. No internet, nobody's, you know, there's no TV broadcast, no radio broadcast. He hears a story two years later about the Haitian Revolution from two Irish sailors. This man, Louis van Mauritius, decides, well, if they can do it in Haiti, and we have an enslaved population here, surely we can stage our own revolt. Now, the, the violent and evil genius of... Uh, enslavement in South Africa and enslavement everywhere really is how they managed to keep people separated from each other and keep people from speaking to one another enslaved people from speaking to one another and keeping them separate from one another this rebellion starts fully as a kind of improvised ground roots movement they start speaking back to the slave masters, the enslavers, they start calling them yay and jay, uh, purposefully disrespecting them, riling them up, to the point where eventually there is a full-on violent revolt. Man many of, um, there were many instances where enslaved people would kill their slave masters or the, um, the uh, police or the overseers, they would, they would enact a kind of mortal physical violence against them. And um, I, I just think that story is remarkable because Louis van Mauritius, you hear that name, Louis van Mauritius, the fan there translates to of or from in English. Fan in, in, in Afrikaans it would translate to, to from or, or of. This was an enslaved person brought to South Africa, who establishes um, 
and his own practice, uh, his own linguistic practice. Um, and he is part of that first group of people who call themselves Afrikaner before it gets hijacked by Dutch settler colonialists, before it gets hijacked by white nationalists, white supremacists, it it carries this powerful meaning for people who are enslaved. It's a declaration of their Africanness. It's a declaration of their their belonging to this place. Um, and I think that's a significant and important thing. Because you must also remember that the slave populations were made up of the so-called um, um, is made up of uh, the different black people who reside in Southern Africa and also the people brought in from other uh, from other parts outside of Southern Africa. So, um, you know, and then also from South Asia. And, uh, yeah, I just think these are important things to to keep in mind when we're talking about um, who are the Afrikaners, what are these epochal moments in in the in the national myth making of Afrikanerdom? Uh, why does it hold such power? What does it mean? All of these things. This brings me to one more historical moment that's 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 current. So I'm really speaking about you know these three kind of establishing historical moments to provide some context for where this this new wave of white nationalist, white racist, Afrikaner uh, musicians uh, pull their symbolism and pull their iconography from. The, the final piece of the, of the context setting that I want to do, and then the next episode will be part two where I talk about the actual music and the musicians. Um, yeah, this part is concerned with with uh, two towns in South Africa. One is one that I'm sure many of you have already heard of when you've looked at um, kind of the story of white racism in South Africa in the present. And that place is Orania. It's a segregationist, whites-only settlement uh, in the northern part of South Africa. It is supposedly self-sufficient but we know that's a lie they have um, they have you know they take resources from the state and uh, just like anybody else who happens to be a citizen of South Africa uh, and it's a dangerous place for any black person to go to and we can talk on and on about how a place like that continues to exist me personally I blame the capitulation in the negotiations to the trope of reconciliation where it's like you know in order to achieve peace we must reconcile our differences we must work towards unity but uh there was no attempt at any sort of justice so that's one place and then another place is uh, a town called uh, Kleinfontein and that's a less no lesser known one 
it's near Pretoria in South Africa, so near the the uh, capital, one of the capitals of South Africa. Um, and it's again, it's an Afrikaans only, whites only. Uh, this one is a gated community as opposed to Orania, which is more a, a bit larger, more of a town, a little hamlet, I would say. Um, and yeah, it's fully segregated. It's fully racist. It's fully white nationalist. And um, it is allowed to continue to exist. Now, I can speak for a long time on why this is significant, but I think I want to just settle on on one point. Borg van Blerk, and I'll talk about this later more, he goes and performs in these places, these types of places. He lets people wave the old South African flag. He encourages this kind of uh, mythical um, hero-making of white nationalist Afrikaner, uh, white supremacists who who believe that black people are vermin on the land and that they have indigenized themselves to the land to the point where they are the true real owners and 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 God has ordained them to be the true real owners of that land. So this is something that uh, you know there's a there's a lot of literature out on if you go on Google Scholar and you just type in Orania uh, O R A N I A you'll get a ton of really good uh, research and articles. There are people uh, who have written about the history of of white rock music in South Africa and they kind of touch on some of these things. Um, Dr. Aidan Erasmus at the University of the Western Cape is one of them, good friend of mine, incredible scholar. Um, and if you go read his work, you'll you know go to the bibliography, you'll see all the you'll see all the other people who are writing about these things. Um, there are people who have written extensively about the indigenous people of South Africa. Again, a former colleague from the University of the Western Cape, Dr. William Ellis. Uh, who is someone I would encourage everybody to whose work I would encourage everybody to go look up. Um, so that's that for part one for the context setting. The next part is going to be a short exposition uh, discourse rant on the the way sound and music gets incorporated incorporated into this nationalist, white, Africana, racist myth-making in South Africa. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you like what I'm doing, please, please, please uh, like, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this. And if you can leave a review, that really helps me reach audiences. Um, again, if you, wanna, if you want to, if you are capable... I have a $1 tier and a $5 tier on, on Patreon and you can subscribe there. It will really help me out to, to continue making this and increasing the production quality more and more. Thank you for being here. Uh, solidarity always.